You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. I'm Adam Rissman, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. This week, we're continuing to bring you conversations from our Inside Intercom World Tour. That's our recently launched event series all about what it takes to make great product. What you'll hear in this episode comes from the stage of the Daniel Spectrum in Regents Park, Toronto, where I hosted a panel discussion with leaders from three of our favorite area startups. Each shares insight on how to better understand your true competition, how to prioritize growth goals at an early stage, what it really means to be a customer-centric company, and much more. Panelists include Katerina Rizzi, co-founder and CCO at Breather, an on-demand, on-the-go way to find and reserve peaceful and practical meeting rooms and private workspaces. I think a lot of the time um, people get really excited about their own idea, but they're not really taking the time to find out if anybody else actually is interested in the same thing. Tyler Rooney, co-founder and CPO at Format, platform for creatives to easily build a professional portfolio website online without learning how to code. So rarely do you understand why your customer is buying your product and you don't, uh, and you don't appreciate it until kind of long after. And I'm Rita Chandra, head of marketing at Crowdriff, a leading visual and social marketing solution for destination and travel brands. I think it's really easy to come up with ideas and I think it's really hard to say no and figure out what you want to focus on. If you like what you hear, check out our previously released panels from London, New York, and more. And with that, let's hop over to the Daniel Spectrum. So to get started, I think we're going to dive right into product launches and getting products in the hands of people who have hired them to do or solve a certain job for them. Katerina, I know you've seen in your time that founders who have struggled have just been so, so infatuated with their idea that they failed to test it on a small scale and really see what kind of traction is out there. How have you approached that at Breather? Um, I mean, we did a, a lot of um, really like grassroots kind of experiments at the beginning where we really got to understand if people actually were interested in what we thought was a great idea. I think a lot of the time um, people get really excited about their own idea, but they're not really taking the time to find out if anybody else actually is interested in the same thing. So we did a lot of weird little things I probably can't even really talk about right now without offending some other startups. We might have done some stuff with uh, their things. But uh, we, we basically got people to confirm that we were onto something and that they were actually looking for exactly what we were trying to give them. And Tyler, for you, in the early days of Format, what was the biggest lessons that you learned? I know you really made a point when we were talking earlier about getting out and tapping the brains of people whose products and companies you really respected with very targeted questions to make sure that you were able to get off on the right foot. Yeah, the, now when I look back in retrospect, because uh, Format, we've been literally started it almost eight, it'll be eight years in November that we started working on it. And uh, I think the big lessons that I always really kind of appreciate now we're all in retrospect it was not obvious at all like how lucky we were in a lot of things that um i found the right kind of co-founder and you see so many terrible situations there and and that we kind of stumbled into the right kind of product that fit you know what we wanted to kind of build as a company and a business but um yeah like i was i was mentioning to you that you know learning from your mistakes is is valuable but learning from other people's mistakes is invaluable that 
you can you can find someone who's done what you've done before, and you find the right person who, uh, you know, is a year ahead of you. Is you know the next phase of your business. They're, they just added a marketing department. You're looking at a marketing department. Uh, those people can give you feedback that is just uh, unbelievable. And when you feel like you're like, why am I having so much trouble with this, or why why is this not working because of our scale, because of our approach? Um, you go talk to somebody and you really respect their company, you respect what they've done, and like, you, know, you like their advertising, you like their marketing. And you're like, oh, how, like, you guys are killing this. How do you do it? And they're like, oh, we suck at it. Like, we sucked at it for so long. Like, you're going to go through, here's like, the 10 things you're going to do wrong before you get it right. And you know, if you can skip ha- like, five of the things that they messed up, you're, you're well ahead of them. So, and those are not mentors or investors. Those can be like, these lightweight people you meet at a conference and you're like, hey, I, I talked to you like a year ago about this. And, uh, yeah, immensely valuous, in, especially in the early days. Amrita, I know one of the potholes that you've seen people fall into is misunderstanding their competition. And you've leaned upon the jobs to be done framework a little bit for that. The idea that everyone is hiring a product, ultimately help them get a job done, and they may be switching from something because it's better, easier, faster, that sort of thing. How has that informed the way that you market a new product? Well, I think... You know, a a typical kind of marketing framework is to think about the different phases of a buyer's journey. And what I've learned using jobs to be done is that in the earlier stages of a buyer's journey, when someone recognizes that they have some kind of a problem, they're often looking at a lot of different categories of solutions. And I think most companies tend to think that, okay, if I'm in the, you know, we have a social marketing platform, it means we're only competing with other social marketing platforms. When really what Jobs To Be Done helps you uncover is that, um, you know, I worked at audiobooks.com and we realized that people weren't just looking at us compared with Audible, our biggest competitor. They were comparing us to, you know, listening to the radio, listening to a podcast, reading a book, or doing other things to fill that free time. And so what I find with Jobs To Be Done is it's a great way to really orient yourself around what the customer is trying to do instead of assuming that your product or even your category of product is the right solution. So it just helps you uh, see things differently and, and change your messaging and product accordingly. Tyler, you're also familiar with Jobs To Be Done, I know. How has that influenced your thinking at Format? The classic you know, Jobs thing for me is that so rarely do you understand what why your customer is buying your product, and you don't, uh, and you don't appreciate it until kind of long after. Uh, like for me, the just the classic thing of just talking to customers is like, what, what made you finally think I need to make or change like uh, your, your online portfolio? And uh, it's such a different gamut of things, and and sometimes it's because they want to you know find more business, or they want to validate to themselves, or they want to validate to their family, or they want to validate to somebody else, and uh, that context, you know the key thing in jobs is the, the context is so much more about what the person wants to accomplish and, and, and when they're ready to try and actually make progress on, on their goals. We experienced this, the same thing. We had a very specific idea at the beginning of who we thought would be using our spaces. And then as we progressed, we realized our use cases were so, like, they were correct, but there was this whole other funnel of people that were using it because they, they wanted to practice their violin. They wanted to breastfeed. They wanted to play D&D. They wanted to, you know, like, play fantasy football. Like, we started to realize that it was a bigger thing and that um, we were providing a, a place for someone to go. It wasn't just for work anymore. It was just this people really concretely lacked space um, to do whatever their passions were, their interests. Let's talk marketing for a second. So one trend that I've seen recently in startups is people saying that we're just 
we're not ready, we're not doing marketing yet, we're only concentrating on the product. So Katarina, starting with you, what are your views on the role of marketing at an early stage startup, and particularly the relationship between product and marketing? Um, I think, I mean, for us, we were one of those companies. We were just like, it's not about marketing right now. We just got to create this product and see if people even use it and how they use it. Um, you know, we got really good at trying every, I know it's not always the best opinion from certain marketers, but like we're the kind of people that do a hundred different things and see what it sticks because we were creating something that never had been done before. So we didn't really, um, have a model to like base it off of and say, okay, well they've done this and that worked for them. So we'll do this cause it worked for them. So we sort of had to reinvent the wheel with these things. And then the product was, is intricately linked with marketing because of that, because we're, we're really, as we're trying to figure out who's, who we're appealing to and everything, we're trying to make the product also work for them and make sure that it um, appeals to people and allows them to do what they need to do, right? Amrita, I'm sure you have views on this. How do product and marketing work together? Well, I mean, I think it's really hard to market a shitty product. So <laughs> um, it definitely is great when companies make sure that you know they have a product that people want to use and that it provides real value to them. But I've seen it both ways. I mean, you look at the folks at Buffer, who they, did, they didn't really have a product. They marketed the idea of the product and kind of built it once they realized people had interest in it. But I would say, for the most part, I think having a good product just gives you, hopefully, some users or customers that you can use to actually um, you know, speak on your behalf as well. So I do think that in the very, very early stages, um, you know, product probably trumps marketing. And I think that's totally OK. I think it makes my life easier when I can go into a company and they've got happy customers or a, a great product that I can leverage. Tyler, I know you didn't have marketing for a while. You guys were very heavy on word of mouth. Uh, I know for at least a year, maybe longer. What were the pros and cons of that approach? Um, there are no pros to that approach. <laughs> um, it's just riddled with cons. Um, no, it's, uh, yeah, there was really no, um, there's def there was definitely no, what I would call marketing. It's kind of be like, this is what marketing people kind of do, right? Let's give it a try. Um, and the thing I've learned as a, you know, I'm trained as an engineer. I'm not, that's a whole other kind of world to me. The thing I've kind of learned to appreciate about marketing is that it's about the targeting the right thing and following through on it. And like most things do not fit into these nice ROI buckets that you, as much as you want to try and make it work that way, it, it's not just that. And that, um, you know, if you're going to be doing content marketing, you, you, you can't be like, well, we tried putting out one thing and we didn't get a response and that's it. Like marketing sucks. Uh, that's not how it works. And that you you know have to you have to be committed and you have to be able to follow through on it which and you have to realize that it's not just hiring someone to do something it's about them having the resources to actually follow through on it and follow through on it for a while um, which I I can confidently say that it took me a long time to realize that I was definitely not the first to the draw yeah I think also like I do find that some companies they make the mistake of when they do bring in marketing they think that everything's going to happen overnight. And I think that while there are paid ways you can you know, get new users or grow a company, there are other things like brand and you know, more organic ways of marketing that take time and they have this compounded effect. So I do find some startups, when they do bring in a marketer, it's too late in the sense that their expectations, I think, are misaligned. You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Effective customer engagement means the right message is sent to the right person at the right time. 
See how to make it easy at intercom.com slash engage. Shifting gears a little bit, let's uh, talk about something that I know a lot of young companies really struggle with, and that's how to focus and prioritize when things are moving so, so, so fast. Katarina, we'll start with you. How have you managed this at Breather, particularly while you guys are not just growing, but launching in new markets, whole new places? Um, well, we started at the beginning. Uh, we realized about halfway through our seed round that we had to we had to focus. We had to really figure out what was the core metric that was going to get us to an, a Series A. And uh, so we picked one metric. We had a dashboard that we had built that showed how many hours we had uh, sold every week. So we made a commitment that we would grow 8% every week. And it was really ambitious and it was really hard to do, but we knew that if we could do that, that meant we were growing our user base, growing our revenue, you know, and, and expanding at the rate we wanted to. So so we, we stuck to that. We did whatever it took. Um, we made it clear to everybody in the company, regardless of what their role was, that they could have an impact on this. And um, and we celebrated every Thursday with beers if we hit the mark the week before. So it, it worked. It, we still actually use it today, but not 8%. It's an effective rallying tool. Yeah, we liked it. Tyler, you were at Amazon for a while before Format and you mentioned something that resonated with you, that at Amazon, everyone thought that the startup people were risk-takers, but the reality is that they're more risk-adverse. And it sounds like this really resonated with you because you're, you're self-funded, you're bootstrapping. So with a self-funded operation, how do you tackle prioritization and, and growth goals? Um, well, when you're really starting off, it's, it's very easy. It's because you're not actually getting paid. So uh, <laughs> you desperately want to get that done. Um, yeah, this is like um, Bezos is, is, has so many like you know thoughtful little quotes and 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 the one that I mentioned was about how lots of people think entrepreneurs are are risk takers and Bezos is like no like entrepreneurs are the most risk averse people and because your whole job is to de-risk your business is to like deleverage everything that is risky so if you don't have the vision of the you know your business and your product and the landscape of what is the biggest risk and focusing on it if you can't identify it and focus on it then you're done and so yeah when you're bootstrapping and it's obvious it's like how little can we get by on and how do we survive how do we hire the fewest number of people how do we have the lowest bills on everything um which i think is probably in my wheelhouse because I survived that and didn't really get any gray hair from it. So um, in a bootstrapping scenario, it's, it's pretty easy. But I, I love hearing the like one metric thing uh, and focusing on that because, you know, it's you, you got to focus on moving the big stones because it's, it's really easy to get lost on, in the weeds. Exactly. And I think I think lack of focus is probably one of the biggest startup killers. You know, they they try to do, especially in an early stage startup, you know, there's so many things that you can do but not understanding like how to prioritize what gets done when. Um, I think for us too at Crowdrift, we have, like I know on the marketing team, I have a very clear one metric that I want to get to for this year because we need to hit that metric in order for us to hit our overall company objective. So even though there's a million ideas that people have, I think it's really easy to come up with ideas and I think it's really hard to say no and figure out what you want to focus on. One thing that I hear thrown around all the time that I think we all believe in, but depending on who you talk to, it can mean totally different things from a tactical perspective, is this idea of customer centricity being so important to success. Katarina, we'll start with you. You What is a customer-centric business? What does that mean to you, and how have you employed that? 
Um, I have a line that we use all the time, which is treat everyone like it's their birthday. And we've said that from the beginning. It's the way, same way we work now. And our customer service team, you know, it makes me really happy. I see it often online. I'll see people be like, this might not have gone great, but customer service was awesome and they fixed everything and that was so nice. So, you know, the, the big thing for me was uh, always about um, not just apologizing if something went wrong, but making amends for it or it actually feel like showing some empathy for them. Um, so we've really built a really core base around treating our customers well. And I think that's, you know, like I said, even when we're a startup, you're, you're going to screw up a bunch of stuff. So when we did, there was always... They, because of our ability to empathize with them and fix the problem or make amends somehow, they kept, kept, kept coming back. And that was always the way we were able to make sure that they were our top priority. Because if, if they're not there, we don't have, we don't have a business. So it's uh, the, the number one priority. Tyler, I know that's a big pillar for you guys as well. Yeah, that's, um, again, this is like, uh, you know, I really loved culture at Amazon, except for the bad parts, which I'm sure you've read about <laughs> in the New York Times. But... Uh, Amazon's core mission was we are the world's most customer-centric organization. And that was like defined in you know, the late 90s. That was um, kind of a very different thing. Um, and Bezos got that from, from Sony. Uh, and, and Sony's mission was that Sony wouldn't be associated with quality, but that Sony would be so good that Japan would be associated with quality. And when you have a mission that is that big and that encompassing, that anyone, like anyone who worked at Sony could believe in that. And as, as hollow as those things can ring true, right? Like Enron's mission statement was to be like as honest as or whatever. Something <laughs> that was completely, complete bullshit. But I, I could be on a call with something just going horribly wrong at Amazon. And, you know, people are kind of arguing with each other about how to fix it. And something would be like, everyone just like, calm the fuck down because we're just going to do like whatever is best for the customer. Let's move on. And I've, I've kind of found, you know, lots of situations at, at Format where it's, both the biases of your customers and, and, and people on the team that we're, we're so trained to not think that we're dealing with human beings. And, you know, you get customers like, I remember in the early days, you get these like, customers that raged, and, but they use our, their portfolios on format, so their phone number's listed, and I give them a call, and they're so embarrassed that they acted like a child on email. And, you know, I remember one guy on our support team telling me once that he's like, man, he's like, sometimes you get people who, like, are clearly trying to cheat us. Like, they want refunds for total, like, made-up excuses. And, um, and I was like, yeah, but, like, don't worry about getting money out of that guy. I don't want his money. Like, just give it back to him. And that's about being true to our mission and being true to, like, actually want to deliver value to your customers. And if you keep your eye on that ball, you're, I think you're already ahead of the game. Yeah, I think that... Um it can be really hard to be customer-centric if you're in a role that doesn't have exposure to the customer. Um, you know, if you're in customer success or you're in sales, you probably have a, you have a ton of exposure to the customer. So I think part of being a customer-centric organization is, you know, making sure that the voice of the customer somehow um, gets extended to all disciplines, not just a couple of departments. And, you know, there are ways you can do that um, in terms of just exposing people to customers like face-to-face -face or over the phone or through email or whatever. But I think it needs to be, you know, multi-departmental. I think there's even a bigger thing with that that is um, we encourage people, we encourage our people to go use 
our product so they can become the customer and find the same faults that a customer would or the same successes that a customer would. Um, if they sit behind a desk all day, they don't actually get to experience what they're building. So um, that's always really what encouraged our company to be able to go out and use the product, do it, and find out what's wrong. Don't be afraid to go tell people if you felt something could be improved on. Well, so we're, we're coming up against our buffer here, so this will be our last question, but obviously that's one big component of a great product. It's a customer-centric one. But um, just in, in general, I'm going to pose this to each of you guys since this is what our events really come down to. What separates a good product from a great product? It's a big question. Uh, you want to go first? I can start, I can start with that. This. For me, I think it's that they sweat the small stuff. Um, there's a great book I read called Micro Interactions by a designer called Dan Saffer. And it's the small details when you're using a product that really convey the thoughtfulness that the company has around really understanding the customer and what you need. So for me, it's the, it's the small stuff that really separates the good from the great. I, I think for me, uh, when I think about products that like, I, I love using or that I'm like, impressed with, I feel like the thing that makes good from great is something that the way the value proposition is communicated like, at the start is so clear that you're like, oh my God, like, where has this been all my life? But then also follows through on that, that it's, it's engaging and, and, and compelling, like, it, that it, it delivers on that again and again and again, that, that, that it feels like that every time you use it. And, and I think it's pretty rare that someone gets both of those sides. So. I, I completely agree. I mean, I think it's really about engagement and how much somebody falls in love with your product. Um, I think the, for us, the big thing is uh, the pain point that you solve for somebody when they go, oh my God, like you said, where's this been all my life? Like, this is the, what I've been looking for. Well, everyone, please give it up one more time for our panelists this evening, Katarina, Tyler, and Amrita. Thank you guys so much. Thanks. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.